Hi folks, excited to be back for episode 75 of the Panoramic Outdoors podcast. And Chase, I feel like that's got to be some sort of milestone in and of itself. I like it. 75 is a good number. Um, happy to be here for 75 episodes. Uh, so I guess right now, big thanks to all the uh, fans out there, or all the people that support us, all the people that uh, either buy gear, leave us messages, give us that five-star rating on uh, on your platforms. You know, all that stuff helps us keep going here, and, and uh, it's certainly been a ride. So 75, and we... Uh, I feel like we got a pretty fitting guest for episode 75. Yeah, so I guess if you recall this time last year, pre-COVID, um, we were super excited to be involved in the uh, the 2020 version of the Winnipeg Delta Waterfowl Banquet. Um, we, we did a podcast in the Manitoba Museum. We, we were up on stage doing a little entertainment an interview style with some of the the key players at Delta, and it it was just a great event. Um, so Delta's looked to transition that this year, obviously, because we can't gather here in Manitoba at the moment, and they're they're doing more of an online style fundraiser, which we'll talk on in a bit a bit. But uh, to kind of try and rebuild on that banquet style that has been just such a crucial driver for them so 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 many years, but as a as a way to kind of connect with delta we sat down with their uh chief biologist there jim fisher and uh he talks about some of the amazing and interesting work that he's done not only through his career but with delta as a whole and uh we're talking anything from like studying ducks trying to you know create more habitat for ducks and all the kind of intricacies that go into duck management throughout you know a, a wide range of land across both this country and the states right right and, and jim has a long long history with delta um you know he started there when he was in his teenage years uh volunteering and and kind of took his uh university degrees through that and uh now is the senior director of canadian conservation and hunting policy for delta waterfowl so that's pretty awesome. Quite the uh, astounding career and uh, has certainly dedicated his life to uh, conservation of waterfowl. Totally. But before we get into the, the, the meat and potatoes of the podcast there, I, I have to say, Chase, it's been nice to be, we, we've gone on a couple excursions here since the, the restrictions relaxed a little and uh, it's been nice. It feels like old times almost. Oh man, it's been uh, certainly refreshing to to get out with you and and uh, I mean normally you and I get on quite a few adventures throughout the winter, um, but COVID restrictions has certainly taken its toll on that this year. So when they locked up here, it's nice to connect with you again. And uh, we had a couple good days, I must say. Um, yeah. I guess our first outing we can talk about was uh, our trip into Forbes Lake, which uh, has kind of become a yearly spot for us to head to. And I'd like to almost get there another time this year again when it's a little bit warmer because she was pretty chilly when we went out there. Yeah. I think it was minus it was, 41. 
Yeah, I was just happy all the vehicles started. Let's be honest. So. Yeah, yeah. When it gets that cold out, you know what? A um, couple things you always worry about is breakdowns because things just break a heck of a lot easier when it's that cold, and uh, so that includes like any gear, um, augers, snowmobiles, trucks, whatever maybe batteries freeze. You know, you have that one draw on your on your in your vehicle. That's today <clears throat> that it's it's gonna draw that battery down and and your truck's not gonna start. So um we certainly came up prepared for the day. Uh my gear, you know, I always try and dress in the warmest gear possible. And I said to you earlier in the trip too that I had these big old snowmobile gloves that I bought probably fifteen years ago I had intentions of selling and I didn't, so I'm glad I held on to those babies. But the one piece of gear that I'd like to talk about that uh, we kind of put to the test out there uh, is our dry shod boots. So dry shod uh, was kind enough to send us some boots to try out and uh, we got the Arctic Storm High. So that's a high boot and these these are like a, a neoprene style boot but it's just not like a piece of neoprene slapped in there. We're talking about seven layers of protection in these things including an EVA cold blocking midsole. So like I said, uh, I think it was around minus 29, just straight temperature when we rolled up there. And it was minus 29 when we got back to the vehicle too. And uh, minus 41 with the windshield. And we probably had like a solid, I don't know, close to 10K, maybe not quite a 10K snowmobile ride in there. And uh, I mean, my feet didn't freeze. They were good. They were good, man, and uh, paired up with some wool love socks. Keep your feet real warm, real dry, and uh, yeah, dry shod boots. They're waterproof boots for hunting that provide you with the comfort and confidence you need in the field, stream, or tree stand. So don't miss that perfect shot because your feet are tired, sore, or cold. That's their motto. They have a whole selection of boots that you can get here in Canada. If you want to check them out, go to dryshodcanada.ca and uh, we are talking about the latest and greatest technology in neoprene boots here, you guys. Uh, check them out. Yeah, and you looked warm too and uh, that was that was good to see because we almost got into a few hairy situations and actually before I start with a few of those, but uh, it, for those of you who aren't familiar with Forbes Lake, it's a small shield lake and the white shell and we were accessing it through Pointe de Bois kind of uh all the way up that east side there and it's, we went there to target lake trout and it's kind of kind of a nice lake to get back out on it's a bit of a trip but we we had a few hiccups and now they weren't catastrophic which is good news when it's that cold and you're that far back but it it could have been, you know, a bounce here or a bounce there. It could have been a lot different. Um, even just getting out there, we were busting trail part of the way or were the first ones cutting for that part of the day. And uh, I think we we had to bust through some pretty thick snow there and almost tipped the sled once. Um, coming back, though, one of the plugs fouled, so we had to change that on the lake. Luckily, I had the, the right plug. And then uh, we hit slush. I remember you and me chase there, and we had to hammer it there. Uh, luckily, that plug was fresh. And then uh, I almost drove her straight into the open creek, 
because uh, my visor was so fogged. So the, there was a there was no shortage of opportunities to to get cold real quick. I think, eh? Yeah, we were definitely uh, you know right on the edge of uh, having a real bad day. So luckily everything worked out in our favor and nothing catastrophic happened. But she would have been chilly either uh, you know getting in that slush and uh, getting stuck in there or in the creek you know um, both things that can uh, change your day around very quick but the good news was is we got into a few lakers uh, and uh, you cooked up a heck of a meal out there on your little white gas stove little deer loin sandwich looked awesome tasted great yeah, I mean, despite despite the cold, man, we had a great day out there, I feel like. We came and we set up wasn't too bad. Uh, you got the body heater rolling there in the tent, and we were warm in the tent. We kind of set up out of the wind. We were fishing about 80 feet of water, and um, the Lakers didn't really turn on until about 11 o'clock there. And uh, then they got real aggressive for a while, which was awesome. And, uh, yeah, we had, a we had a good day fishing, man. You can't complain about that. Yeah. Can't complain about that. And then, uh, so the, the, the next day we actually got out fishing again, which was great. And, uh, was even able to say hi to dad out on the ice at Lockport there. And this time we figured we're sticking close to home a little more and we're probably not going to have that serious of a fish what a good time to put the pit barrel to the test. So we did a little video and you'll, you'll have to keep your eyes open for it because we'll, hopefully we'll be posting it soon about whether we could run this thing and in the coldest of cold for Manitoba weathers here, um, at least for where we live. And uh, so we got that pit barrel ripping on that cold Sunday. And I think same, same temperatures like minus 30 minus 31 and then like minus 40 with the wind chill kind of scenario. And let me tell you that that pit barrel is a pretty sweet unit. And it's kind of funny. To, I, I know like it was kind of nice to not even have to think about your propane tank freezing, for example, because I guarantee like your, your propane draw would have been affected by that kind of weather in the wide open like that. So not to give anything away, watch for the YouTube video, but still very impressed with the pit barrel cooker. If you want to get into one of these things, we've been using them religiously for the past year, year and a half here, and have never had a bad meal off of them. Go to check them out, pitbarrelcooker.com. If you're near Winnipeg, they're at Lux Barbecue, and you can't go wrong, I say. You can't go wrong. Yeah, man, that's that's one thing. I almost guarantee you in those temperatures that, that propane would have froze up. We had no issue getting that thing fired up and once she was lit man there was some spectacular heat coming off there and again just a fabulous product at the end can't beat it yeah so that was our weekend we didn't get a bite at the shack though that sucked but it is what it is yeah at Lockport. might be time to move that one we'll see yeah not in minus 30 whatever weather though yeah that's what shit breaks exactly so moving on to the podcast here, huge thanks to Jim for coming on and also big thanks for Delta for, you know, getting in touch with us because it's, uh, they do important work for waterfowl. They do important work for the environment as a whole, I would say. 
Um, so wherever we can support them and their mission, absolutely. And then also like it was a good reminder for me to re-up my membership with them. So what Delta has going on this year, they have uh, kind of like a, a stay-at-home auction going on, silent auction style, over 80 items they're going to run from February 12th to the 19th. They're just working on the link right now to get it up, but stay tuned. Uh, watch their social media. Check out their website during those days. Um, I'm sure there's some great prizes there. I remember being at the banquet in person and being stunned by some of the prizes. So check it out. It's a good cause and a great organization. Love all the folks at Delta. Huge shout out to them. And uh, make sure you you go check out their website. That's right. And, uh, you know, last year we had a heck of a pile of fun at the uh, at the Delta banquet. And you can say hell, hell on the podcast, Chase. <laughs> it's and- our podcast. And it's super disappointing that we can't that be part of that this year, but this is our being part of it. So, um, like Tristan said, renew your membership, go out, check out the support, and check out the banquet. If you want to check them out, follow them on social media. It's Delta Waterfowl Winnipeg. That's the chapter that's going to be uh, putting on the the banquet here on the twelfth, and uh, might as well just follow Delta Waterfowl as well on Instagram. So. Um, don't forget to check them out. For sure. So without further ado, introducing episode 75, Jim Fisher from Delta Waterfowl. Give it a listen. See you on the other side, folks. So welcome to the podcast, Jim Fisher. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Uh, Jim, do you before we start off, do you just kind of want to tell us a little bit about uh, your role at Delta, what you do there, and your position? Sure, yeah. I'm a longtime employee of Delta. I did my master's. I actually worked for Delta even prior to that. Did my master's with Delta, got my foot in the door, and been there ever since. So I've been around for over 25 years now. Uh, done a lot of different jobs for Delta, and I'm currently uh, working on policy primarily right now, uh, both agricultural policies to benefit ducks, um, but also hunting policies across Canada. So that's my main two roles. And then I do a bit of fundraising because we are a nonprofit and we all have to do a little bit of that as well. Cool. Yeah, and we'll we'll definitely dive into some of those activities later in the podcast. But before uh, we get rolling too deep, we always have five burning questions for our guests here. And it's just a way to get a, a sense of uh, who you are, where you're from. And uh, there's no right or wrong answer, but we're going to try to fire them off pretty quick. Sometimes we go on sidebar, sometimes we don't. So feel free to answer how you would like. Chase, you got the questions queued up? Yeah, you bet. I got five questions here for you, Jim. Uh, First question, um, if you had one last concert to go do, not too sure how big of a uh, music buff you are, um, but what? uh, who would you go see for your last concert? You can pick uh, a current uh, artist or group, or you can pick one that's uh, previously deceased. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm kind of I'm kind of liking Steve Miller Band. That's always kind of been my go-to thing. I guess I'd have to say that I did go to ACDC. Well, maybe the last time they were here, I'm not sure, and <laughs> I would have normally said that, but that one wore me right down to a frazzle. So I'm I'm gonna <laughs> go a little more mellow this time. So yeah, <laughs> that's a good guys. 
they still tour it's amazing yeah it's a respectable answer um you got one last meal to go to you're gonna have that right before your concert what uh what uh what's going to be on the plate and uh i mean you can get as crazy as you want with this one and what are you going to wash that down with yeah it's kind of a toss-up between uh tur and bluebill but uh, i'd have to say bluebill grew up on the delta marsh that's always been my favorite thing so slow roasted uh diver duck uh sweet potato and uh wash it down boy hmm. it would have to be i guess probably a beer some kind of a a good hearty uh beer of some kind i'm currently on on a program my diet dictates i have to drink but if it's my like sleeman's or something light like a light beer but yeah i'd probably go to uh some some really dark uh ale or something like that yeah nice and you said slow roasted so um i'm, I'm curious to this because like there's this huge swing in the uh the culinary uh, wild culinary world right now that you know uh wild game don't overcook it, eat it, uh, medium rare kind of thing. How long are you going to be cooking that duck for? And uh, is it going to be well done kind of thing? And give us a little rundown of the preparation, the process of that. I'm curious. Yeah, it was one taught to me by one of our former colleagues, Bob Bailey, who's in Ontario now. And uh, But basically, we, we actually have a video on it. It's called Lose the Lid. And uh, basically, it's uh, slow roasting at 250 for... Depends on the size of duck, I guess. For bluebills, you're talking three hours plus, and uh, with beer. So pour most of the beer into the pan and maybe just taste, have a taste just to make sure it's okay. And uh, then some spices on there. And uh, and actually lose the lid references, you know, is to actually take aluminum foil and put that over the top and crimp it so it's, uh, keeps it keeps it all moist in there. And if you do that, man, the duck just, you just touch it with a fork and the meat falls off. Um, so pluck ducks and uh, in there and it's it's to die for. And I've, I've actually convinced un- unbelievable numbers of people how great duck is by by doing that. I like the sounds of that. I was actually just uh, digging through the freezer, doing a little organizing the other day and um, probably got a couple meals worth of ducks sitting there. So I'll have to uh, put that on the uh, on the list. Do you do you age your duck meat, Jim? Huh. It depends who you ask. Yeah, some of my friends say, yeah, he's kind of got a bit of English in him, and leave my ducks kind of lying around for a while. But uh, no, I, I, <laughs> all things considered, I, I'm not really into that. I know there are a number of people who do uh, hang their ducks, you know, like the old English style, and that's yeah. I don't do that so much anymore these days. But uh, yeah. I'm, more more apt to clean clean birds that you know within a day or two for sure of getting them so right on well that'll bring us into our next question here and uh these next two are kind of going to be i'm pretty sure uh similar answers to what we've already gone over here but uh you got one last hunt to go on um where's it going to be and what are you chasing yeah, it'd have to be a big, uh, big marsh in Manitoba, and it'd have to be for bluebills. Nothing but bluebills. Eight. We're lucky in Canada, eh? We can get eight bluebills. So hopefully, not too many Americans are listening here. But uh, <laughs> what's for, the uh, what's the difference? A bit different. They can shoot one or two down there, so we're lucky. Yeah. That's it, eh? Wow, it's interesting. Um, so uh, 
for my fourth question is what's your favorite waterfowl species now unless you got some surprise up your sleeve here and uh <laughs> maybe a grebe or something could be <laughs> what I'm, I'm assuming is going to be a bluebell you're spot on chase you nailed it yeah <laughs> it came out too soon i guess yeah, i should have saved it for later but yeah no that's my favorite for sure yeah that's awesome if, you had, just... if you had to pick a backup if if uh is there a second or third, maybe, you know, a couple other respectable ducks hanging there out? Are. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd quickly go to pintail, late season pintail, which are hard to come by. But if you know where you're going in Manitoba, you can get them late late season. They're white fat. Phenomenal. They're probably the probably actually, quite frankly, they're better to eat than, than a bluebill. But uh, but then uh, then early season blue wing teal. We get a crack now that the season starts September 1. Um, the teal, half of them are already down in Louisiana at that point. So that means they're fully plumed, fat, easy picking, wonderful little devils. Yeah. So blue wing teal would be right up there as well. Both sound like great table fare. Um, it, it's funny to, uh, you know, you talk to duck hunters a lot and you always seem to have this like diver guys or hardcore diver hunters and that's kind of their, their, uh, I don't know what their main fascination in, in duck hunting and I'm, I'm, I'm it's almost, like a bow hunter almost. Yeah. I'm curious to, to what's, what, what draws you to the divers, to the bluebills as opposed to like, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, like mallards or another, um, duck species. Yeah. No, it's a great question, Chase. Yeah. I always kind of get teased and chided by most of my, most of the other duck people that work for Delta cause they're all mallard hunters and, but I always joke about, you know, how they're slow beach ball, blah, blah, blah. And and in fact, we have a tool called a hen house we might talk about later that raises mallards. And so I always joke that, well, they're okay, they you know, but they just produce mallards. But but yeah, I guess uh, for me, growing up on the Delta Marsh, growing up at a small place there called Tin Town on the south side, um, that's when I was a kid, that was the duck. Like they were in big numbers in the marsh. That's what made the marsh famous was the diving ducks. Um, and so for me that, I think as you, as you age and, and kind of throughout your life, you kind of recreate, try and recreate what the magic of this duck hunting thing was as a young person. So for me, I, I, I think that's what it is, is why I'm so passionate about hunting bluebills is because that's, you know, I remember going out there when I was started, when I was 12 and going with my great uncle and there, there was thousands of like, like the, the marsh was black. There was slicks of thousands of bluebills on the marsh late in the year. So it's kind of that hardcore, cold, you know, end of the year, high winds and, you know, white caps on the marsh. And it, man, it just, just seeing those ducks and, and they're just so fast and they're, they just store, as you guys know, they just storm on over the decoys and like fearless kind of, yeah, they're, I don't know. It's hard to, yeah. I like how you how you put that Jim and and you really like reminiscing back to the the early days of your introduction into hunting and and like the the more and more outdoors uh men and women that we speak with um you know we kind of dive into like the sensory memory and you know how there's sometimes you get that certain smell that brings you back to a place or you see something or hear something. And, and, uh, I'm curious, do you, do you ever get any of that when you're heading out to, um, some of your duck hunting spots where 
you smell something, see something, hear something, it, it brings you back to a spot in your childhood? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah you bring up smell. As a, it's a funny one. Eh? You don't really think about it ever, but the smell of of the old, we called them shooting camps at, at Tintown. Like the smell of them, like they're often old and kind of musty, maybe a bit of mold. Who knows what that smell is, but but between that and uh, and the old coats, the old canvas coats, you know, that everyone all just had the old brown coats back in the day. And you, you just wear them and wear them and you never wash them and they just sit in the camp and they hang up there and then you go and you, you put that on and you smell it as you're doing that. Like, wow, that that's phenomenal. So, yeah, you're right. It, it's a lot of the senses of, of uh, being there and just being out in the raw climate right when it's when it's maybe sleeting you know you can't even look you know luckily with duck hunting unlike deer hunting you often have the wind at your back right so it's kind of nice but you know that that high winds with the wind at your back you're kind of sheltered a bit looking downwind and and uh you know it's just those are the things that you'll never forget right as a is a bit of being one with nature and a bit of being vulnerable like the whole life and death of of you know, not necessarily the game, but but your own raw ability to, you know, that's the magic of the Delta Marsh because there's no motors. So you're going out there. It's upon you to get out and get back, right? If the winds come up and the rollers start happening, like you, you kind of think, it makes you think about your own, you know, life, being alive, right? And you are, like it's, there's nothing like it that, that brings that, that vibrancy of being alive as being out with nature and kind of risk you know the odd time a bit risky right not that you're looking to 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 risk your life out there but there you know if you if you're not careful you kind of you know the water's cold man you fall in you're in trouble right we all know the hypothermia challenges and everything but that that's kind of part of the the draw for me is just kind of being out there in the raw nature right and being part of it so you you mentioned um Tin Town, kind of as your 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 start. Is that fair to say your start in in the your hunting career or your hunting world? Um, could you maybe are you comfortable speaking on like the a bit of like what Tin Town is and you know that air what that Delta Marsh area represents for um, like it's a very interesting community in and of itself, and yet it also holds like a huge um, e- both ecological and uh, I would say. Um, you know, like almost economical, or you know, like a, it benefits the economy too, just through all the, the the ducks it produces, right? So, like, what is the significant? There's a history there. There's a there's an ecological significance, and there's also how it it plays into our society now, right? So, um, yeah, yeah, big big question yeah, there, Kim. But well, I'd be happy to just ramble a bit on that. I don't know if I'll answer all those specific questions, Tristan, but no, I. You know, growing up there, like growing up in Portage, and my my uh, my great grandfather actually used to hunt the marsh and had a place out in the middle of the marsh. And my I remember my grandma telling me stories of going out in her little dress, you know, when she was five or six in a dress, paddling out. They had to go from Tintown and paddle about two miles just to get to their camp. If you look at the bays of the marsh, there's one called Wilson Lake that's right in, kind of in the middle of the center of the whole marsh. And at the north end of it, there used to be a camp there, and that my great grandfather used to own that. But uh, and 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 there it is, like the history there just is endless. And uh, you know, you you think back to uh, 
you know, royalty coming there, right? Like King George came there back in 1903 or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, and you look at the Delta waterfall history there, like the, the guy who, who started General Mills, right? Like that's our history. And so he loved hunting canvas packs and it kind of deteriorated in Heron Lake in Southwest Minnesota. He ends up showing up on the marsh and the rest is history, right? So you got, and and then you got Jimmy Robinson who had camps, kind of three different camps over the years, ended up in St. Ambrose. I know you guys have ties to St. Ambrose and, and uh, like Jimmy Robinson brought in all the celebrities, right? So Clark Gables and Babe Ruth's and, you know, the list just goes on and on, you know, Roy Rogers. And it, it's just an incredible legacy that we have there. So that so the past is unbelievable. Uh, you bring up, you know, the yes, there's duck production there. You know, the marsh is really most famous for its staging waterfowl. So the, the duck, interestingly, a lot of our researchers back in the day, the first people that James Ford Bell brought, the, the General Mills guy brought, he found that the ducks weren't raised in these big marshes by and large they were more in the prairie potholes out in the in the farm country to the west right so so it's it's really famous for staging and and when it's healthy and the marsh is vibrant and there's you know, i mean there's hundreds of thousands of birds that will come in there in the fall of all types and and you know and it goes beyond our beloved ducks to you know other other types of birds we we ran a, a banding station for songbirds on the marsh for probably 15, 20 years, and uh, and it had actually the highest catch rate of passerines anywhere in North America. So, it, you know, they're just that ridge on the lakeshore between Lake Manitoba and the marsh itself. There's a small ridge that's now treed, right, as you guys know, and, and uh, it really condenses the, the warblers and sparrows and swallows, and everybody just kind of gets mm -hmm. narrowed in there, and then the the invertebrate production, which is a food that drives all those birds being there, right? So all the insectivores that are eating the flying insects, as you guys are well aware, there's the odd mosquito, but there's, you know, incredible hatches of piranomids, the little fish flies and other things that, that drive the whole system. And and then you got the fish side of it, right? We have a commercial fishery on the lake and and the marsh is, is kind of an important part of that whole uh, scheme. And so, I, I mean, it just goes... I mean, you could you could just talk about the Delta Marsh for hours and hours, and there's lots sure. of interest and passion and energy around that. So, yeah. And so you were fortunate enough to kind of grow up in this this area, this ecology, and and kind of benefit from that uh, that proximity and being being a part of that, finding yourself you know kind of in that ecosystem. Slowly, BS luck, Tristan. Right. <laughs> How, how did I end up growing up in Portage La Prairie, right? I had, had my fam, my mom and dad were both from Winnipeg, and my dad got a job in Portage. And then, uh, top on that, my mom's side of the family had places at had a place at Tin Town, actually two. But, um, and then you know, fell in love with it right from the get go. I knew I wanted to be a duck biologist, and then, uh, and then yeah, and just being a local kid, like I got a job when I was 17, working for Delta Waterfowl, man. Like, how great is that? So it's it's mostly luck, I would say, but but maybe a bit of passion and and a little bit of schooling, you know. But uh, you know, if you're very very interested in something, you can make things happen for yourself in spite of your ineptitudes <laughs> on some <laughs> front, perhaps. But uh, yeah, I've done well and just just loved it. Yeah, that's an amazing tenure with uh, Delta. We we call those seventeen year old jobs internships now, and uh, 
<laughs> and I think they're a little different, but uh, it's uh, it's amazing to hear. And we we have you here today because you you are like a a, a figurehead at Delta in many ways. And Delta itself, maybe we could talk about that for a second. Has been you know like most places forced to to shift models here as we adapt to COVID. Tristan, and uh, I'm going to stop yep. you here. I got one more question to ask. Okay. <laughs> you go right in. No. <laughs> I'm going to, uh, yeah. So I'm going to cut you off before uh, we've only truly uh, covered four of the, the five burning questions we've prepared. So um, I, I'm sorry. And I hope it doesn't bust up the flow here, but I think it might uh, have something productive. But I'm, I'm very curious to know on this one. Um, who is your favorite conservation icon? Yeah, boy, that's a great one. Pro- probably Aldo Leopold. He, he, uh, he, you know, Teddy Roosevelt gets an honorable mention down in the states, but uh, and and they're both Americans, kind of in a way, sadly. But uh, yeah, Aldo Leopold was. I mean, he was the first conservationist. He was a professor early in the early days. He, I mean, you read. You read his, uh, you know, he has a famous book called the Sand County Almanac that's based on a, a county in Wisconsin, um, and he was a professor there. And he, his readings, and like he actually has one of the, the last chapter in that book is about the Delta Marsh, if you can believe that. It's on the Clandeboy Bay over by St. Ambrose, where the channel comes in from the from the lake into the marsh over east there. And, and uh, you know his influence on on things was was tremendous, and and he he actually sent hit one of his grad students was kind of Delta's first ever grad student, and he was a he was a you know he did, he did a lot for Delta waterfowl in the early days, but I mean his, his legacy is goes way beyond anything that you know the Delta side of things, and so yeah that that would be my my choice I guess yeah phenomenal. Sorry to cut you off, Tristan. Oh no, no, I and I'm glad you did. That was a that was a great answer and uh yeah, I'll be looking up some stuff after that. But we're, one of the reasons we're chatting today is cuz we last this time last year we were sitting around a table at the Delta fundraiser uh enjoying a few cocktails, uh maybe bidding on some prizes and uh having some really interesting conversations with folks and uh this year is a little different um and it's going to be a little different for a lot of folks, but uh What's going on with Delta this year, Jim, and how how's Delta adapted to kind of like that's because we know that fundraiser was a huge event for for all the local chapters. Um, so how's Delta moving forward here? Yeah, it's a great great question, Tristan. The, the uh, COVID has been hard on everybody, and uh, you know you, you don't want to say anything. Woe is me when you work for a crazy you know duck outfit or something like that. You know, there's bigger bigger fish to fry than how our duck populations are doing. So, so that just having said that, you know, like Delta is actually interestingly, we, we, our, our main two sources of funds are banquets and major donors, right? So someone who maybe strokes a check for a thousand, 5,000 and above typically. Um, and, and on the uh, major donor side, because the markets, I think uh, by and large have, done pretty well shockingly i don't understand the markets enough to know why um so so we've done on that one leg of the stool we've we've actually done good we're, we're likely to make budget our fiscal is the end of feb um and uh on the banquet side it's been a struggle 
just to be honest. And uh, so we have adapted, as you alluded to, we've uh, gone to more, well, there's soup to nuts. So we have, in some of the states, they, they actually still are having full-on banquets, which is kind of shocking in my way of thinking, but good. I mean, financially good. But uh, And then across Canada, very challenging. So we have about 50 or 60 different chapters throughout Canada. Um, and so depending on where you are in the country, they've adapted or, or had real big challenges. Like Ontario, we've had real challenges there. Um, here in Man like here in Western Canada, uh, we're doing uh, kind of more online auctions, and those have actually done pretty well. Um, you know, it doesn't obviously it doesn't have the same vibe. It's 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 kind of stale, but um, compared to the the banquets that we you know you guys came, thanks thanks by the way um, to last year and our, our Winnipeg chapter is the biggest one in the country. We're proud. We we uh, beat Port Row in Ontario the last two years, so we're excited <laughs> about that. And uh, but yeah, so so you know the online ones we are. It's more more like a silent auction thing. They run for a week, so we're kind of able to send email reminders and so on and so forth that kind of drive people to go at least have a look. And there's some pretty nice stuff on the auctions and. So, so there is that, and that that's kind of you know it's not going to obviously raise as much as the, the the excitement and energy around a banquet. Let's be honest, but but we can hold our own and still raise some money. And 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 the neat thing is is what the banquets do is it it when, when someone writes a check and just you know not just but sends it to Delta, that that's a connection. But but the the chapters are interesting in that a it engages all our volunteers and b the money goes for something local. So we take a percentage, 15% of what's raised at these banquets goes back to the chapter. So it goes back to the volunteers to say, we want to put out some hen houses for mallards, or we want to have a mentored hunt for local new hunters, whether that, you know, whatever age or however you want to do that. So there, so it, it, to me, the, the that, and that's our lifeblood, right? Like, the volunteers and uh, members that are really passionate that's what really drives delta on a number of fronts and so you need the banquets for that and you, you can't replace that with virtual online stuff you know you can gather people on a call on a virtual zoom meeting or whatever um to kind of keep it alive but boy it'd be hard to hard to start them at this point right right so if someone's listening and they you know they they see the value in what Delta has to offer for our community and want to engage through the online auction, what's the, what's the best way to access that? Yeah. What, well, the first step would be to join if you're a member of Delta. So youth is, uh, I think it's 20 or 25 bucks and then adults is 35 bucks. You can join. Um, and then you, we get your email and stuff. And, and then we send out email blast to all our members across Canada. That's a, the upside of these online things is you don't have to just have it local, right? You can have someone in BC perhaps bidding on a Winnipeg uh, banquet. Um, uh, other than that, yeah, there's there's uh, stuff you can uh, you you could just send an email to any of our staff. All our staff contacts are on on our website under contacts, and so you can just go on there and you can see my ugly mug holding up a canvas back. Uh, and you can find out how to reach me on there. And uh, same, same as our fundraising people, right? So if you want to get in on the banquet stuff, whether that's online or otherwise, that's that's a good way to do it as well. So, awesome. And so, 
and I was chatting with Roald, who, uh, who's you know a friend of the podcast and also a great friend of Delta, from what I understand. And uh, he works at the Manitoba Heritage Corporation there, which also does some great conservation work as well. Um, and he was mentioning that the um, one of the main drivers here for Delta and their conservation work is kind of the endowment funds that um, Delta operates and helps to put back into the community. Um, how's that model work and like what's what are the what's what are those funds going towards yeah i think what first off yeah rolled you'd never find a better guy than that eh he's yeah. a i i met rolled he he actually was a student at delta out in minnedosa we had to do a lot of research out there in western manitoba and then uh then he, he ended up doing his master's with delta and just you know did this drone crazy drone work which was very technical and and Roald's just brilliant. He's a passionate, well, well-spoken young man. Like as you guys are well aware, okay. Like, um, but so, so yeah. Pro- probably this, the endowment thing. There's, there's a couple of endowments. So depending on which one you want to talk about, Delta does have endowment funds uh, from past donors that would set up a, an endowment fund through Delta. You know, the original Bell family. There's Bell family endowments that we that we hold and. And they spit out, you know, four or five percent a year kind of thing. Um, but probably what Roald's talking about is the uh, are the new trust funds um, that we've set up. Uh, we the province of Manitoba. That's that's the uh, the conservation trusts and the mm-hmm. following to grow trusts. So there's actually uh, three collective trusts that are are uh, totaling two hundred and two million dollars that uh, the provincial art us taxpayers. We paid it, man. It's about 150 bucks a crack for every Manitoban. Um, has gone into the Winnipeg Foundation for conservation work forever, and uh, and that money is housed with the Winnipeg Foundation. And we are we are so lucky to have that. There is not a single province or a state or anything that I'm aware of that has used an endowment model for conservation. So government programs, as you guys are well aware, often are with this party or that party, and they're here for their term and three, five-year kind of efforts and initiatives. And then, oh, that party left or whatever, a new one comes in, and they say, oh, that one's worthless. We're going to have our own version of something new. And and that's the nature of government, and fair enough. But but for a government like uh, you know our our current government that set this up, it's it's phenomenal. And uh, I. I can't thank them enough, and uh, you know, and it, it, and one of the key cogs in that wheel, unabashedly, is is one of Delta's former leaders, Jonathan Scarf. He was our president of Delta, and again, had the same path. I'm kind of following in his footsteps in many regards, but yeah, I had a long history with Delta, and was our president for a number of years, and so he's now uh, the chief of staff and principal secretary of the Conservative Party of Manitoba. And uh, it was his vision, quite frankly, that uh, that set this up. And uh, kudos to him. And so now, actually, Rold, coming back to Rold, Rold's a benefactor of that because he's actually uh, part of his job with the Heritage Corporation. Here is uh, is helping deliver those funds to a variety of groups for great conservation work forever. Hey, that, isn't that nice? Yeah. That's yeah, that's really exciting. That means that we have funds earmarked strictly for conservation, like in perpetuity, essentially, 
that's in Manitoba here, which is um, really exciting, I think. And it also means, at least from my conversations with Roll, that virtually anyone with a good idea around conservation could apply to one of these um, grants or um, uh, the foundation and try to get, you know, some local support, some actual money support for, you know, like a conservation effort in their area. So I, I think it's a really good example of how we could take some finances to mobilize locally what the community needs are. Absolutely. Yeah. So that, that 200 million is, uh, you know, the way it's set up is it, it'll distribute four to 5% a year. So that works out to eight to $10 million. And, uh, there's kind of two tranches. One is, uh, to fund this grow concept. And, uh, that is run by the provincial government. Um, leading when working with our watershed districts across agro Manitoba. So if you look at all of Southern Manitoba, most of the RMs, not all of them, we'd like all of them to be, by the way, um, are involved with their watershed districts. And there's, like I said, there's 14 of them, right? And so we have set up that the lion's share of all these trust monies will go to support this grow program. And, and a big piece of that, that, really is why I'm involved with this so much is, is that it's going to protect wetlands. You know, if you look at what drives duck populations, well, you need wetlands to start. So those are the prairie potholes or small prairie wetlands that are on farmland primarily. And uh, so, so the, the government also brought in regulations of late um, to strengthen the protection of the, the, the deeper wetlands, the ones with cattail, for example. In, in farm fields, so those are no longer allowed to be drained, so those are protected. And then uh, the more shallow ones, the ones maybe that a farmer can can uh, on a drier time get get a cedar in, but in a wetter time it might might not, and he might have to come back. He or she may have to come back and seed it later. So those are called temporary wetlands. And so part of the the idea with Grow will be to have a robust program to provide incentives through 10-year agreements with farmers. To pay them 75% of the cash rental rate of of the land uh, to protect those wetlands through 10-year agreements. That's phenomenal. I want to take a little segue here from uh, from the financial side of things, and I'm I'm interested in like what what is so valuable to the ducks in those prairie wetlands that that they find necessary to nest in as a, uh, compared to like the delta marsh or a, a, a bigger marsh body yeah the big big marsh bodies as i mentioned earlier like they're staging areas so hold big numbers of ducks on either side of the breeding season um and provide food and shelter for those ducks and, and actually even during the molt right because ducks go flightless in august or july so that's that's where those big marshes are play a real key component or key role but the the small you know half acre two acre up to two, you know, kind of small little prairie potholes. I mean, one, one section or quarters, you know, a land is split up across Agro Manitoba by the mile, right? All the roads are by mile. So one, one section of the good pothole country could have 150 of these 200 wetlands on it. And why that's important is when ducks settle in the spring, so they're migrating up, um, some ducks, some species, it's complex like everything in life, eh? So some, some species home or, or have high phylopatry and they cut, the females come to where they were born. 
every single year. So a species like canvasback, mallard, those species come back to exactly where they're born. The other ducks that are more nomadic are things like blue-winged teal and pintail. That are my, especially blue-winged teal. They're flying along and they go, hmm, it's wet here. I'm in Nebraska, as it turns out. I'm nesting here. Oh, it's dry in Nebraska. I'm flying. Keep going. Oh, they end up in northern Alberta. So they're... So anyway, so, so when ducks are coming back in the spring, I got off on a tangent there, but when they come back in the spring, they settle based on how many wetlands are on the ground. So if we've lost them, you look at the state of Iowa as a great example. They drained 99% of their wetlands 50 years ago through tile drainage, and it's, it's gone. It's phenomenal farm country, by the way. So they can grow a lot of corn and beans there, right? Reasons for everything. So, so there's no ducks settling in Iowa, and it would have been the most productive landscape on the continent gone but when they but they come so now they're coming to manitoba as a southwest manitoba killarney is a great area minnedosa shoal lake they show up there and depending on the density of those potholes that are still on the landscape that drives carrying capacity so how many duck pairs are on a, an area or a unit of land is driven by how many wetlands there are so if we drain them and there's reasons for draining them can't blame a farmer. All the market signals they receive are saying drain, right? So that's why we need something to change there. We need we need some incentivization, and that's what we're talking about. But anyway, that so that's what drives the population. So the ducks settle on the land. So you may have, in the really high density of wetland areas, you may have 60, 100 pairs of ducks per square mile, believe it or not, pairs. That's a heck of a pile of birds, right? So if you look at... At the prairie potholes that extend from Alberta to Iowa, you got hot spots of 100 pairs per square mile. Now, you go over to the Great Lake states or provinces, you might have a good area would be five pairs per square mile. Or you go to the boreal forest, it's the same kind of thing. Not that those aren't important. There's lots of reasons that those are very important as well. I'm not slagging them at all, but we have the most productive wetlands on the planet in, in the prairies. Is this all linked back to the like we had a bunch of icebergs dragged across the top of our province and uh, now we got a bunch of holes in it? Yep, the glaciers as they retreated, you're spot on, Tristan. Yeah, as the glaciers retreated, they they scraped these these uh, small depressions out and they, and they filled full of water and that's it. So, so but yeah, go ahead. I'm Chase. curious here still. What 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 draws like besides the ducks returning to the same uh areas year after year what what do what do those little potholes provide for those ducks that they can't get elsewhere why why is the yeah. density so high there yeah because yeah, it seems like there's lots of like little holes in shield country you know what i mean like when we go up to kenora and stuff like that there's lots of little potholes lakes and stuff like that but you're saying something's different here jim yeah, the, the, the prairie potholes are way more productive. So it's the soils, it's the land itself. So the, the if you were to go look at the invertebrates, the little aquatic insects that are living in those little potholes, they're teeming with insects. Whereas if you go, say, to the interlake or boreal or wherever, other shield country, not as productive. So more, more you know, it's to do with salinity and, and soil and a whole bunch of factors. And so, yeah, when the ducks come back, they're territorial. Some, again, some of them are very territorial. Others aren't. Different species do different things. But the more potholes you have on, an, on a unit area, say a square mile, 
if you got a pair of mallard settle on on this pothole and another pair comes in that drake his job is to chase that pair away from that from her territory their territory so in the spring you'll often i i can hear it you don't even have to have your eyes open man you you know when there's a three bird flight happening right so what it is is it's a male chasing a pair away and then it, they'll fly over another territory and another male will leave and he'll go chasing so you, sometimes you see, you know, these bigger flocks of one hen with, you know, six or eight or more drakes chasing them. So, so it's all to do with, uh, you know, the, the territories and them setting them up. And, and the more wetlands you have, the more pro potentially you're setting the stage for great production if you have those wetlands there. Now, Delta has programs also associated. So, so the first thing when you think about ducks and producing ducks, you need the wetlands. You don't have the wetlands, you're not in the game. It's like having a farm. You don't have a farm, you're not producing any whatever you're doing, crops or beef or whatever you're doing, right? So you have to have the wetlands as a base to start, and then you need to think about the next most important things are hatch rates, nest success, hen success, hen survival, duckling survival. Those are the things that drive what the studies that have looked at this have shown that 75% of what drives duck populations happen on the breeding grounds during the spring. Hunting has such a tiny little, it's, it's less than 10% of what drives the duck population. So we, we've set, we're very conser conservative in the way the governments manage harvest. And we're all for that, right? As, as hunter conservationists, we're all about that. Like we don't want to have a big impact on duck populations in any one given year. And so we're, we abide by the, the rules, and, and they're set up very conservatively, quite frankly. Right. We, we had a conversation yeah. recently with, uh, with a fella who was um, – he works Frank. for uh, Pheasants Forever. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, uh, part of the conversation, and it really made me realize how lucky we are up here and how big of a, a piece of this puzzle that, that, you know, the Manitoba prairies – actually is in waterfowl production because like you said like it's a massive nesting area and and that is um from a conservation standpoint it's like the golden egg pretty much in the nest right we're we're so blessed to be here man it we're so lucky like right now that the duck season is uh is still going on and the guys down south are saying, where's the ducks, right, for the third year in a row. So if you talk to anyone from Arkansas or wherever down there, they're, they're lamenting. Like, and, and you think, you look around here and, well, we're not waiting for them to come from anywhere. Even though there's the old lore of, oh, the northerns are in. And you know, when are the ducks going to come down from up north? Well, we kind of are in the north, man. <laughs> you don't have to wait for anything, actually. They're, and they're not coming from the north, by the way. Most, you know, yes, there's ducks that are north of us, but... I mean, we, we're so blessed, and, and we have very few people hunting, and that, that's kind of the story, right? Like, that's our angle, man. We got, so, and we're living here. It's kind of cold, and there's, there's reasons that it kind of, it's hard to live here. Well, geez, we got duck hunting in spades, and, there's, and sadly, there's not enough. You know, we enjoy it, but that's what, you know, that's part of my, my passion is to try and encourage more people to go out and take advantage of something that's right here and in spades, man. We got the best duck hunting in the world let's be honest 
Yeah, you guys, like, uh, I've always, sometimes I've harkened back to, like, uh, the sentimentality of it all and thinking about, I've mentioned before, if I never saw a poplar again, I'd be very sad about that because it's just my prairie roots. Um, I know I've been out west in the mountains. It's gorgeous. Um, and you can go down south and live a little bit warmer. But I think on this frontier, too, if I... Uh, if I never had an icy cold wave splash over the boat again and soak my face and soak my gear and ice up my jacket and uh, to smell that marsh in, you know, a early November or like mid-November day, something like that, uh, you know, that's another thing that I think I'd be very remiss to, to, to be without all that, all those senses too. Yeah. I, I, but, I live without that actually, Tristan, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting uh, uh, where we come from and uh, severely impacts where we go. Um, and we, speaking of where we came from here, we, we were talking, and I think we were like kind of beating around the bush a little bit here about one of the topics we're hoping to hop onto, and it, it's it's kind of a style of conservation. And maybe we could even loop back. It seems like there's, it, as far as like conservation gets portrayed in the media or. Uh, you know, and in more layman areas here often, it seems that it always seems to be like a, uh, you know, a hippie wildlife person who wants to save a tree versus like uh, an economic outcome, right? And like, that's kind of the duality of it here. Um, and you mentioned the Iowa model or the Iowa scenario there where they, they landed up draining the whole state and producing corn and beans which clearly like one side went out there but chatting with you here i'm getting the sense that you know delta and a lot of like modern conservationists are trying to find a middle ground here trying to find a, a third way as to how we you know satisfy both parties or kind of all sides here in in a conservation model that's sustainable is that fair to say jim yeah, that, that's kind of our, my path at Delta has been wonderful. Uh, one of my first people that I, when, when I finished, actually when I did my master's is with a, a gentleman who's still around, he lives in Carmen, and uh, he, he was, uh, he spent his whole career in agriculture. He did all the, the land inventories and stuff for soil qualities and all that. So, and then he came to Delta right at the end of his career and uh, an ag, agrologist and expert and uh he, he uh, it was when we changed, Delta was interesting. We, we did student research. We funded masters and PhDs for our first 56 years of existence. And that was pretty much it. No one knew who Delta was at that point, you know, other than if you're in the scientific community, right? So anyway, so we, we went down a path in the early 90s there. And, uh, and it, was a, it was a respectful conversation with the people on the land. You know, there's kind of different approaches to this. Like you can you can go out and try and maybe buy land and do these things that that you might come up with ideas. And those while those have some merit, um, by and large, the land will forever be in farmers' hands. So we approached it kind of saying, well, maybe we'll just go talk to some farmers, see what they have to say about conservation and how would they do it. If you know, how do we work together? And uh, that, so that we did that, we had a program called Adopt a Pothole, and we had school groups and hunters from all over North America adopting a pothole, and we'd connect them, and we'd fly these potholes and take pictures and send them to the donors and give them a little, you know, certificate of appreciation, all these things. It was great, and and uh, that that led us down the path of of another 
approach that Jonathan Champion called ALICE, which is Alternative Land Use Services. And it's basically paying farmers, imagine this, for environmental goods and services. EGNS is the acronym, but it just instead of paying for their, their traditional agricultural commodities that they've always been paid for, why not recognize and reward the good work that many of them are already doing and you could encourage them to do a little more if you give a few incentives. Wow, what a concept, eh? But it took us, I mean, this is relatively new. And and so that's that's kind of the path that, that I've been very fortunate to have been able to work on. And uh, so that was Alice. And so I went across Alberta. You mentioned you went to the mountains. I went and worked in Alberta first, actually, in 2009. And then I bebopped around, got it going with different counties in Alberta. Started at uh, Lloydminster and worked to Parkland County and Red Deer and all over the place. Anyway, and then we got going in Saskatchewan. And then we brought it back to Manitoba, kind of the birthplace of Manitoba, of Alice. And that, uh, yeah, that was great. And then uh, then we car- Delta carved Alice off onto its own. It's its own entity now, Alice Canada. And when Jonathan got in with the government, he said, look, we, we want to make this even bigger and better. And that's that's growth. And so right now we've caught the car, right? We got we got the money. And that's always the hardest part in any of this conversation is how do you get the money to do this, right? And I already talked about that, $200 million. Woo, hey, hey, now we can do something, right? <laughs> so now what we're trying to do is say, whoa, we caught the car. We've been barking and chasing this car for our whole careers, man. Never thought we'd ever catch one. We got it. Hallelujah. So so now my what my role is right now is trying to put the put some tire patchy tires on this car and get her headed down the road, right? So we're we're working with these watershed districts all over Agro Manitoba and saying, hey man, like let's go. We got money, you know. We got we got to get you guys up and running and give her. Let's go. We got to get to the farmers and get them contracts and get them signed up and start paying these farmers for all the great things that they do do because they many of them are. Who cares? You know, I had one rancher in Alberta who said, who cares more about the environment than me? I live here. And I thought, boy, you know, and, and that's the whole point. Put the farmers on the conservation pedestal and have them talk about the environment versus society viewing them as out there, maybe not doing things that, you know, we always hear about that. You kind of, So it's kind of this urban rural thing. You get into lots of interesting conversations. So. I've I've got a, a bunch of questions around this. Actually, it sounds super interesting. Um, yeah, just kind of brought us through what I'm guessing is about a decade's worth of work here, if not more, and um, kind of rounded it off quite nicely with we got 200 million dollars and uh, <laughs> we go from there. But were were there any road bumps around along the way? Like, what was that journey like? I, I can't imagine it was uh, it, it was. Obviously, you didn't get the money on the first go, kind of scenario. We're we're still not there yet, Tristan. Yeah, it's it's interesting. We got we got money from the province of Manitoba. We'd love to have that, you know, from a duck hunter's perspective. Manitoba has a fair number of potholes and good densities and good duck production, but but really look to the west and Saskatchewan probably has ten times that, and Alberta has, you know, not as much as Saskatchewan, but still hands down beats Manitoba. So. We, so we're still got a ways to go, but yeah, we're we're ecstatic that we have what we have right now, and uh, we, we'd also like to see the federal government get on board. 
So, so we're not there. We're, we're step one. We got one jurisdiction going and it's fabulous, but, but yeah, long journey. You know, the approach initially with Alice, you know, was just talk to governments. So the initial efforts back 20 years ago, go talk to the government. It's a good idea. Of course, government will fund this. So we went, and it wasn't me at that time, but all, you know, federal governments, provincial governments, nonstop, stopped talking and telling and, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah oh, that sounds good. And, you know, nowhere, got nowhere, right? We're right on the goal line. I used to bug the guys who worked on this. There's a few Bobs and Jonathan were working on it. And, <laughs> and they're, oh, we're right on the goal line. And eventually I was like, well, which goal line were you on? Yeah, like, but but anyway, very challenging to to see a vision that you have actually come to fruition in government because it's it's hard you know and there's lots of reasons for that and and so so the path we went on is we actually worked uh, with a number of groups the, the the Garfield Weston Foundation gave us some kind of seed money very generous and they they got us going down a path of doing demonstration communities and commun and demonstration projects on farms and we hired a great communicator, uh, Nigel Sims, who worked for Delta, and he's now he used to work for CBC, and he's now DU's head communications person. And Nigel was great at telling stories. And we had had another gem in communication guy named Fred Greenslade, who's a Portish guy, and a, you know taking phenomenal duck pictures, by the way. But anyway, so we had a team, and and uh, we'd go out and video farmers talking about this, and you know community leaders, uh, Reeves of rural municipalities and and counties in Alberta and and just got some magic around it right so capturing what it like having the farmers tell their story of why they care so much about the environment and what they've done through Alice and and that that worked well and it did grow but we've we're still not quite there but it but it's moving hey and and uh i i think it's it's uh, still still ahead of us on on a broader perspective like we we'd love if canada would come in and match this right on the federal side from you know just speaking honestly um yeah so it, it's it, it's uh the, de the so so the first step was kind of we have an idea it was a concept development and go talk to government and say we don't want to del deliver anything like this at delta we're tiny man it should be a government thing you guys take it and run with it and then okay well that didn't go anywhere and then okay well, let's take it to the beyond concept and have demonstration. Show people what this is. Bring people in. Come and see it. Do tours and all, you know, communication efforts and so on and so forth. So we did that for another 10 years. And and still, really, what we want is a robust program. And Canada, quite frankly, is the only country that does not have a program like this. You go to the States. You ever heard of CRP? You talk to someone at Pheasants Forever, they may have brought it up, eh? Like 6 million acres in the Dakotas of grassland converted from cropland to, to grass. And boy, that has an impact on pheasants and ducks and grassland birds and carbon yeah. sequestration and everything, right? So so Canada's lagging, right? You go to the European Union and it's all about paying farmers for environmental goods and services and Australia and so on. And Canada's really, I'm sadly behind. So Yeah, you have uh, a, cons a conversation about conservation with anyone from... Uh from down south and CRP is a, a common uh, acronym that that uh, comes in the conversation. Uh, I'm kind of curious here, Jim, is there is there any sort of uh, prediction that that you guys have to, you know, what what 
positive effects this could really have on uh, waterfowl populations if, if you get it to say where you want it to be. Yeah, definitely, Chase. So, so what what our goal has always been, and we have a PowerPoint specific to this, and it's kind of been driving us. And uh, our our goal. So, so there's again, there's two prongs here. One is regulations. So, saying, look, no more drainage. We've got to stop the drainage on the deeper ones. So that's now enshrined. Um, and then on the shallower wetlands, the incentive side. And so that's what we're talking about: funding through this grow thing. And uh, so, so our goal is to say, okay, look, there's five classes. Of, I don't want to get into this, but there's five classes. The deeper three are covered through regulations, a little more complex than saying no drainage in all cases. But anyway, that's essentially what's there. And then for the shallow, the type one and two wetlands, the ones I mentioned that you can farm through on a normal year, um, those ones we want to we want to protect 90% of them through this program. So we're basing that on research that was done actually in North Dakota on a similar effort we're, we're doing down there called Working Wetlands. And uh, basically the survey for those producers in North Dakota asked them, what would it take for you to consider leaving these shallow wetlands? You can still farm through them, just don't drain them, right? Because if you drain them, they're gone. Yeah, yeah, you can restore them and everything, but good luck. So you're way better off saying, look, like let's protect what we have. And so, so at, at the price point of 75% of cash rental for a community, 90% of the farmers said, I'm in. So that's an annual payment of kind of almost the, the going rate for, for what you'd pay to rent that land. So it's a, it's a big price, but we think we could do, and you know, we initially we thought just the Southwest corner, but our modeling said that, it would cost three point two million dollars annually to do that. And so, it's uh, yeah. I, I I like the uh, the approach because it really seems to flow with um, a lot of modern conservation shifts here. With seems to incorporate some sort of like multi stakeholder approach. And in a lot of ways, you've got um, you've got the government there. You've got the, the the farmers there. You've got Delta representing you know the hunters and conservationists at the table. Uh, I'm curious, was, like, was there any like shift in how the the farmers were reacting to like maybe like seeing this model in action? Like, what did you make any believers or uh, new friends or anything of that sort, Jim, in the process? Sadly, with COVID, I I'm uh, I'm depressed because I can't go out and hang out with farmers and either <laughs> talk them into something or listen, you know, what the real story is. Eh? They'll they'll straighten you right out, but. Uh... Yeah, I, I know in my work in Alice, it was magic. We we had phenomenal, I mean, there's one guy, this guy named Sean McGrath is a traditional rancher along the, the Battle River in Alberta, and he has PhDs working for him uh, on genetics and stuff on his on his cows. And uh, anyway, like he's just a brilliant, uh, unbelievable, like many of them, a brilliant leader. And, and when he first heard about it, he said, uh, yeah, I was kind of thinking of, maybe starting something like that like and and we had comments from farmers saying like they look at you and they can't like they can't believe you're actually talking their language they they think you have two heads They're, they don't trust you right because we've made a few <laughs> missteps over the years in, in the conservation community just to be honest right so so some farmers are very leery about conservation groups coming in and working in their communities i, I don't want to i have no intention of getting into what that all is about but so yeah, it it is. 
wants farmer and our challenge right now is a no one in manitoba knows about this right not not no one i i'd like to see everybody who cares about the environment to actually be aware of this and i appreciate this platform to maybe help enlighten a few people and and so that's both people who live in the city that's rural people that's but also producers right we want we want farmers and ranchers to know all about this and be knocking at the door of these watershed district managers offices and say i'm in where do i sign up give me a contract i i want to i want to be part of this right and uh, that that's exciting and, and i will mention just as an aside i don't want to leave ducks unlimited out of this because they they actually uh, have contributed a significant amount to this initial step on the wetland side and are working with the watershed districts to and so they're they're providing some funding through through the districts which is great right so that's that's nice to see as well that's a really like multi-stakeholder approach then if uh everyone's at the table in that fashion that's awesome yeah and then so some of the other activities that delta's up to as well is um some mentored hunts how is that still going on now or is that changing and, yeah uh, yeah go ahead great question so i'm, I'm wearing this one eh, today this is can't cover up the shine here too but i'm wearing my wildlife habitat canada hat what so wildlife habitat canada is uh is the entity that environment canada set up to disperse our federal duck stamp right so everyone buys a, a federal permit and stamp aside from your provincial license and so half of that money essentially for the permit stamp, the stamp portion goes to Wildlife Habitat Canada and then they distribute grants and, and Delta's lucky to get a, a few shackles out of that. And uh, part, part of that goes to mentored hunts and then things like our banquets, as we talked about earlier, go to provide some funding for these mentored hunts as well. And, and uh, so, so it's interesting, we, we, uh, this year with COVID, it was challenging, right? Like we ran into lots of communities that just said, well, we're not doing anything. And fair enough, right? Like it's up, you know, personal choices. <laughs> you want to go mingle with people and, you know, all the other things. And, and often, you know, these mentored hunts, we do overnight things and other, you know, so it, in vehicles with people and all that. So so we had to modify it a bit. And with our Winnipeg uh, chapter this year, we, we I was part of three hunts. One was our Portage event. So we have a fundraiser in Portage, one in Minnedosa that's actually online right now, I should mention. Um, and, and so Portage did their traditional uh, youth hunt, which we've done every year going back to 2000, so 20 years now. So they pulled one off. It was smaller and it was challenging and so on and so forth. And then we did a, uh, we did a second one. We've been running one with the university. And so getting university students in our field out to experience hunting because the future wildlife professionals driving the bus on all these things, they need to at least be aware of hunting, exposed to it, have a feel for it. And who knows, they might like it, eh? Something might grab them. <laughs> We've actually seen that. It's, it's, that's a whole nother story. I'll just give you one tidbit. So we had one lady who participated in this, a university student. She's been to four in a row now. She's like me. She's on the long-term program of being in school. It takes a while for some of us, but <laughs> I don't know about her story, but that was my story. But anyway, so the first two years, she just came to observe. She was not, you know, what is this hunting thing? And not sure. The last two years, she shot ducks. And that's a great, in my mind, that's phenomenal. So we're trying to get that to all our universities all over North America is our goal. 
Um, so anyway, we were excited to do that one last year. It was kind of a, a, not really a university hunt, if you know what I mean. It was run through Delta. It's a university, you know, it's a different deal with COVID. But anyway, so we pulled it off, a non-university university hunt. Um, and then we did one uh, working with Manitoba Wildlife Federation. We did, we collaborated, uh, there's a, what's a group called? It's a woman waterfowlers group. Uh, I'll have to think of their name. But anyway, they uh, they work with the Wildlife Federation. The Wildlife Federation has, has working with St. Hubertus uh, Gun Club, used to Winnipeg. And then we came in, some of our volunteers from our Winnipeg chapter from Delta, we went to St. Hubertus and had a, a day one camp and talked about hunting and we calling and we went and shot clays and did all that, you know, as we always do with these mentored hunts. So we did that one day and then we actually went to Grants Lake. You guys may be familiar with Grants Lake. Phenomenal because it's close to the city and anyone can just go hunt there. But anyway, we took a group of like 25 people there this year and uh, <laughs> interestingly shot a sum total of zero geese mostly geese flying around they've got some shooting missed a few it was kind of a a, not a very windy day so it was marginal shooting but anyway so but had a phenomenal time and the people really appreciate it and rolled rolled was one of the key cogs yet again and he's there he had like a, a pulled pork kind of version of goose that he shared and we were all socially distancing and so on and so forth but anyway we we were able to do our mentored hunts and that and that's a real thing for us. Like uh, we, right now on the federal side, we're we've, we're selling about 150,000 permits. So you can look at that a number of ways. But we know that people opt in and opt out over time. As far as so it's not really, we don't really have 150,000 duck hunters in Canada. But that's how many buy each year. If you know what I mean. So our goal would would be to see that get up to. Uh, kind of the long-term average of hunters that we've been keeping track of since 1980. Well, hunter numbers, yeah, I guess they'd go back to the 60s that we have a handle on that. Um, and so we'd like to see that get up to 290,000. So we'd like to go from 150 to 290 as our goal in Canada. Um, so, yeah, we're we're super passionate about that. We, we have it to do, especially in Prairie Canada, opportunity abounds, you know, like there uh, you talk about hunter recruitment in, in places of high densities of people, southern Ontario or Louisiana or something like that, and hunters look at you like you're crazy. They do not want to have any more hunters because it's <laughs> it's going to make it worse for them, right? But but man, here we got uh, you guys know we got look at the Delta Marsh is a good example. Coming back there, you, you hear a few shots here and a few shots over there, but. You can only I, I'd only dream of what it was like in the heyday in the fifties and that when there you hear stories of a hundred cars parked, you know, at the boat launch kind of thing and scads of people just heading out and so Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. Even uh, you know, uh once in a while we we uh get mixed up with some uh crews from down south and you get to talking duck hunting with them and some of those uh water bodies they enter, you know, it's it's a lottery or you know they they have to be there at, at 2 a.m to to get in line to to get on the water to hunt ducks that day and drive drive four hours to get there kind of thing so it's it's uh we certainly are blessed it's a com- completely different game up here for us right now yeah yeah so so delta's coming at it from a couple ways one are these kind of camps 
you know, you can do educational camps and we've, we're looking to do more virtual stuff and online stuff with COVID. Um, and then there's the mentored hunts themselves where we take and we've learned it's not all about kids, nothing wrong with taking kids, but if you really want to, you know, it's just like planting a tree, right? Do you plant a six inch seedling or do you go in with a six footer? Which would you have more success with, right? You'd have immediate access, success with an adult that maybe has a bit of, of wherewithal. They might have a vehicle and could buy a gun and they can just go, right, on their own. And, you know, you have to help them out getting them going. But so, so on the, the mentored hunt thing is another one. The other thing that I work on, I'm very lucky. I'm, I'm on a whole bunch of different uh, committees and boards all across Canada um, looking um, at hunting. And, and my passion is hunting regs. And what are the barriers to points, point of entry? And looking across different jurisdictions and say, oh, gee, did you know? A perfect example, um, hunter apprentice licensing. Quebec and BC have this thing where, say, say Chase, you and I met, and you were a big hunter and I had never gone. With hunter apprentice licensing, you could say, I'm going tomorrow. I could go in online, get this hunter apprentice thing. It's free. No hunter ed, no hunter ed required. And as long as you're trained up, you could take me under your wing, and it's for a full year. And you could, and I could try it. So it's a try-before-you-buy approach. And in BC, they've taken out probably 70,000 people this way. Wow. Did you even know about that, right? So, so there's all these amazing tweaks to the regs and the, how we are approaching things. Like you look at Ontario right now, it's challenging there because they have their hunter ed that's expensive. I think it's about 120 bucks if you get a bargain. And it's, it's multi-day in class. Oh, it's COVID. Oh, we're not doing that anymore. What does that mean for new hunting and hunter recruitment and so on in, in Ontario? They don't know about what we got here in Manitoba, or they'd be Manitoba Wildlife Federation would be doing a backstroke in cash because they're, you know, we, we're charging sixty bucks, half the price, and it's all online now. Yeah. It's fabulous what we got here. Yeah. Kudos to the provincial government and MWF, right? So but but we need and this is kind of what I try and do is say, okay, look, there's all these amazing things happening in elsewhere or maybe here. We got the age to 10 here. It's great. That's two extra years. You could be a hunter, right? And we're one of uh, three provinces that have that. Yeah, that's phenomenal. We were uh, having a conversation with, uh, um, I'm not too sure if you're familiar with, with Doug Dern at all. He's more of the, the deer conservation guy down in uh, Wisconsin there. But he was saying in uh, in Germany, I believe it was, to get your hunting license you got to go through like a, a university course pretty much. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, we don't want to go there, eh? No. And, and, <laughs> and, and so we've learned a lot, like like uh, all these things that are happening elsewhere, and, and they, they look at the kind of incident rate, right? Because everyone firstly goes to, oh, Jesus, having guns is dangerous and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, you, you got to pay attention, right? We all get that. But but you actually look at the statistics and the, the incident rate is right on up there with ping pong. Like if you actually do the research, right? So, I mean, other other activities that you get involved with are, are much more dangerous. Obviously, a gun is a whole other game and, you know, certain things could happen. But, you know, not to be disrespectful or aloof about it. But, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, boy, we, we have tied ourselves in knots at times as far as, as that goes. And then other 
other opportunities like you look at uh like morning doves like we've now got bc again bc was the only province up until about five years ago that had a morning dove season in some of their zones and now we've got it in southern ontario we got it in quebec we got it here someday you look at sandhill cranes alberta had saskatchewan and manitoba had sandhill crane seasons going back to 1971 and we had their first ever crane season in alberta this year so there's all kinds of these examples right now and in one of the ones we're kind of exploring with our chapters and working together and looking at in PEI, they're allowed 107 days, just like us, right? That's a federal man uh, allocation of how many days you can hunt waterfowl in North America. PEI, they don't have Sunday hunting, but on top of that, they're, on, they're not taking advantage of all their days. So we're kind of exploring that one right now. And they're, they're actually, if you take all the Sundays off, out of the 107, their last year they hunted 79 days. Wow. Why? Well, the hunters don't know, right? Mm-hmm. So this, this is the kind of stuff that you know through Delta I'm able to kind of help help bring things. And another, I'll stop now. Though the one last one is interesting: Newfoundland. Newfoundland has probably three times the number of hunters than any other province per capita. They, they, it used to be that you had to be 16 years old to hunt ducks in Newfoundland, and we were. We helped. I mean, we you know take credit for everything. There's always lots of partners and players, but but now it's at least down to twelve. <clears throat> so interesting. It's interesting thinking about all those changes because um, I I can't remember who we were chatting with on the podcast, but they they were mentioning that you know one of the biggest barriers to to hunting is that it it often requires a mentor. There's no there's unless unless you're in Germany, I guess there's no hunting university around right so your access point to learning these things is uh is a lot different um than maybe other sports or recreational activities um and so i i can see the value in the mentored hunts and then uh, chase and i were part with the wildlife federation there we did a big game intro to big game hunting virtually and it was actually really amazing to see like the, the sheer diversity of uh folks attending that uh, that class and we delivered it virtually so it was uh, super accessible that way um, it kind of gets me excited thinking about what the future of hunting could look like uh, if if we continue to engage and do outreach and you know obviously with the conservation mindset at the forefront um, I think there's a lot of opportunity there for us as not just hunters but conservationists too yeah no we spent forever thinking about this at Delta you know Rob Olson and Jonathan and many other people over the years and uh, I mean it's and it's interesting if you, you you actually dig into it and and as we become more and more urban all the time right it's it's you know people are just disconnected and then and then you reach out to other other kind of segments of our society and you know adults and and uh, you know this whole new movement around food and you know locally sourced food and you know organics and different things that people are interested Man, no opportunities there. It, it's just, you're right, Tristan, it, it's just a matter of introducing people and getting them all. Like, how do you, you know, we've done a bunch of stuff with, uh, you know, people from all over the place, Pakistan and other place, you know, other countries that are just moved here. And you actually get talking to them and stuff. And they, well, yeah, well, we used to hunt in the old country, but they don't have a hot clue where to start. Mm-hmm. They'd love, they, they're passionate. They'd love to go, but... You can imagine us moving to Pakistan. <laughs> oh, I, I'm going hunting. Yeah, like, well, you, 
you don't know where, how, what, like, you know, figuring all this stuff out. That, and it's stuff that we all just kind of, you know, what? What kind of shells do you use? Well, why are you asking me that, right? Like, it's it's often just basic stuff. And, well, where do you go? Well, here's the Delta Marsh. Go stand here with a pair of rubber boots and maybe the duck will fly by. Eh? It doesn't have to be, you know, big spreads of decoys and spending tons of money and all this stuff, right? It can be quite a simple entry point. So Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear your take on this, Jim. Um, obviously you've, you've, uh, have quite the history of, of, uh, hunter recruitment and, and, uh, in that sense, what, what are a couple of things that you would, uh, recommend a mentor to focus on when bringing out, uh, a new outdoors man or woman to the field? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, I guess it depends eh? if it's, if it's kids, it's, you know, as you guys would know, it's, it's keep it simple. Um, don't, don't overwhelm people, you know, get them the first, you know, we always do the, you know, outside of kind of our programmatic kind of stuff. Like to me, the, a big deal is just having someone fire a gun, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, I've had, I've got, I have no idea how many people I put a gun in their hands for the first time. And, and it's a big deal, right? Everyone's like, whoa guns eh? that's part of our challenge right in canadian society we got governments bringing in stuff and most people go well yeah why do you don't need a gun of course not i would that's criminals are out shooting people with guns isn't that what they are you know and military and so on but so so i mean you you get talking to people you know make it make it safe get some hearing protection get some eye protection go shoot at a pumpkin man put a put a tin cap put the box of shells with no shells in it out 20 yards away and get behind them and talk you know obviously there's a number of steps before you pull the trigger but talk about form and stance and bend your knees and lean in right and all that kind of stuff and then they shoot the gun and they and there's a big smile on their face it's an accomplishment just to fire a gun which seems absurd for us that have been doing this since we're types right little 12 year old kids so so yeah that's that's a big thing get them to fire it you know it doesn't have to be a any big bores or anything you could shoot shoot a 22 or a pellet gun or something like that to start off but anyway so so yeah get the get them shooting i guess is the first first step and then you know i i often you know my personal experience with deer it took me a while i was a duck hunter as a kid and i it's kind of a you know, big, big brown eye thing and all the rest of it. Not, I'm not saying you couldn't, you know, many people do start with deer. But, you know, you, you think about where you might start. Well, smaller game is maybe more conducive. Duck hunting is great because you can stand around and talk and laugh and, oh, here comes some ducks. And, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's much more open to, to having more opportunity. Whereas deer hunting, boy, you better be quiet and yeah. still stuff. but. And then we have turkeys too, right? Turkeys is another great point of entry. And so, I mean, we got chickens, we got ducks, we got turkeys, big, massive, we call them all chickens, eh? Mini chickens and giant <laughs> chickens. And they're all just chickens really at the end of the day. But uh, but yeah, that that's, would be my thing would be to, and obviously I'm biased because I'm a big duck hunter, but I, I think you can take bigger groups out duck hunting and it's simpler process and and you are likely, <laughs> unlike our, our Grants Lake experience, normally somebody gets one, eh? And you can at least then show them how to clean it and talk about anatomy and all that fun stuff. So, 
I, I haven't been around a MentorCon since uh, actually we were the benefactors of one way back in the day, and uh, I oh. can't remember who who put it on. But it was a uh, um, it was a Delta Hunt at uh, it was a Delta Hunt Shimmer's day, yeah. place, yeah. Yeah, I remember shooting one of Dougie's decoys though, and we still got our limit. Oh, a Doug um, Yeah, yeah, and um, so I I get the feel and the vibe from it from then, but I'm I'm wondering like what what's it like now being around that gathering and you know how, bringing in that goose or whatever it is that that you harvest that day for those folks for the first time. Oh yeah, as you'll likely recall, it's. The, the grins on their faces and their, you know, and, and true for, you know, these university hunts and stuff, it's the same deal, right? Like for anybody, like even like, again, shooting a gun is a big deal, but then once you get to the point of actually getting a bird, you see those smiles and, you know, those kind of post hunt shots that uh, holding up one nice duck tastefully and you see the big grins on their faces. I got lots of those pictures and man, people are proud and it only takes one. You just need one bird, right? Even if it's a group of four people and they got one duck, man, that's a, that's something, man. They achieve something, you know. And and uh, yeah, so it, it, there is a lot of joy. I I uh, boy, I've done a lot of them over the years, and I just I love it. Like I I can't get enough of it, and I'll be doing that till I die, hopefully. And and hopefully when I get really old, like really old and decrepit. And some of these younger people come around and maybe take an old gym out, eh? That's maybe that's maybe that's really why I'm doing it. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. But but uh, yeah, I think I think part of the uh, part of the uh, attraction for some of these new hunters to to these mentored hunts also is is the the sense of community, the sense of camaraderie that you get uh, coming together as a group to go out and do something too. Uh, you know obviously there's there's lots of benefits about doing it you know getting that one-on-one -on -one and 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 growing up in it as a kid as like getting passed down from fathers and 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 stuff like that but um one thing that uh through that that gets mentioned a lot through uh some of the programs at the mwf is that you know you get that camaraderie between new hunters and now they have a hunting buddy to go out and, and learn with if they don't have that other uh, piece of mentorship available beyond that event. Yeah, Chase, I <clears throat> I don't know how I became a duck hunter, quite honestly. Like I, my uh, the guy who got me going was my uncle, and he lived in Cape Breton, so he wasn't around. He had a camp at Tintown, but he didn't come out. He might come out once, once, and he might take me in his old '59 Chevy hauling around the marsh. But um, but other than that, it was me waiting with tears at the ready, asking my dad to take me, right? My dad was an engineer. He didn't, didn't have a hot clue or he couldn't care less, but he was a good dad, so he took me. So he and I would go out and we'd stand in the marsh south of the cottages at Delta and pass shoot ducks. And my whole first year, zero. My second year, four. And I'm talking multi, multi, multi trips out there. I didn't have a hot clue what I was doing, man. <laughs> Right, I had to shoot. I had my single shot cooey and I'd fire away and I I I think I was I didn't have the gun fitted properly. No, no one taught me anything. Just here, you know, I, we bought a gun and I shot and I I didn't know the first thing about actually where the pellets might be going. <laughs> you know, so I, I think what happened was I just the gun was never didn't fit me and I just missed all the time and until you actually have someone helping you. And the other key thing, like for me, I always thought would have been cool, like growing up in Portage even 
I had no buddies that hunted. It was like me and my dad, and my dad wasn't a mentor at all. You know, thankfully he took me so I could at least scratch away. But um, And I always thought with these kids' hunts, one of the cool parts is how great would it have been to be walking down, you know, school's kind of intimidating and all that, with different age kids and back in the bullying days, maybe it's better now, maybe not. But And, and to be walking down the hallway and between classes and see an older kid maybe or a younger kid that you met at one of these hunts in your community and you kind of look at that person you go hey how's it going hey and and that's a bond man like that's that's another hunter wow i didn't have that at all i had none of that and i think boy would that have been what an opportunity for those young rascals to boys and girls to see each other and then and then spend the time together and and now you you see them out and they're like you guys right they're doing yeah. amazing things and they're passionate and yeah yeah that's cool Alice. you you spark uh it, it's a spark that just carries forward it's amazing to think about um and c- kind of thinking in that same vein um and towards the end here just looking at like how to get involved in Delta. Like obviously you can get your, your membership and that's maybe the most accessible way to, to get involved. But, um, I can't help but look, I, I we chat with you here, Jim, uh, you know, chatting with Scott Petrie or rolled, uh, like everyone who's involved in Delta just seems to have this like vibe or spark to them as well. And it seems like whether your, your staff or volunteer base, it's, um, a really engaged and exciting community that the Delta's Delta has here in Winnipeg and across the, the, the country. Um, what kind of opportunities that, you know, kind of extend themselves beyond just that, that membership there for, uh, for folks who want to give back a little. Yeah. Yeah. My mind quickly goes to these, uh, you know, getting involved with these mentored hunts and passing on the tradition and what better way than do it kind of in an organized fashion, you know, like Chase is asking, well, what, what are some, tips or how would you do it well man if you if you are part of one of these hunts and you see see how they're run and be a part of them as you guys both did yourselves i mean that's the magic and uh and and being a part of that is really what drives those chapters you know you look at that so join you know joining one of those or even maybe starting a chapter right like we're you know we have some we've got four in manitoba as an example we got one in Bertle and minnedosa winnipeg and portage and, uh, you know, there's plenty of opportunity to start a new one, perhaps, or join one of the existing ones. And, you know, we, the, the Winnipeg one, we've got, man, we've got like 20, 25 people on on the committee there. And it's a real fun group. And, and we do hunts together and they have fun and we build wood duck boxes and and uh, support all these mentored hunts. And, and they get to come to the Delta Marsh and do a bit of hunting themselves and, and uh, taking new people out. And it, it's it, it is. It's fun. And then you, you're, once you do all those types of things, when it comes to the banquet and that, wow, it's it's just easy because, you you know, it's part of you. And, you, you know, these committee, you know, it's like anything, eh? like, oh, we're having another committee meeting and all this stuff. And but but if it's something that you've you know, that's a part of you, then it, it's easy, man. You know, I work for Delta and yeah, OK, I may be biased and I maybe have to do it for my work. But, man, I, you know, I'll I'll we, we all go the extra mile when, when it's something that you're really it gets you right like we're fired up about so okay. lucky to be to have a job that's not a job in a way right like it's it's 
Yeah, I, like I realize not many people are, are able to, you know, you guys are doing this podcast and everything, and it's a way for you guys to do something that, that's near and dear to your hearts. And, and I've been lucky to do that for, for work, so. Yeah, yeah, I certainly, and I get that sense almost of everyone that uh, has a has a hand in Delta there. So um, I'd encourage people to to reach out if they if they're interested or even curious. A- anyone I, I've talked to there personally has been very friendly and very easy to talk with. So um, every everyone all the way from uh, you know the the initial contact to the to the CEO or uh, you know so it's uh, it's been quite. Uh, quite an accommodating journey and um one last question here jim i'm just curious like what's on the horizon for delta as we go forward like what what are you, what are you dreaming big of and what's like what's what's next yeah i'm gonna have to keep working for another 30 years or so eh? but uh <clears throat> yeah there you know and I, i'm currently working on all these policy things so i'd love it to be to see the numbers of hunters start rebounding and, and growing and you know the whole hunter r3 thing we we gotta we gotta get that rolling in a serious way and quite frankly we have you know yes we're doing some good things but the numbers don't don't show hey look at all this big meteoric rise of uh hunter numbers no we're still struggling right so so that's that's a big one um on the ag policy stuff on the grow thing get this thing rolling down the tracks here, get it highly effectively implemented now that we've caught the car and got the money. That's doesn't just happen, right? It takes some work. And uh, so I'm excited to continue working on that. And we've got some great colleagues in uh, Manitoba government and MHHC like Rold and others. Um, so, so there's that. And then on the, uh, on the, you know, looking to the West, we'd love to see this, um, the same program, be established in Saskatchewan and Alberta at some point in the near, hopefully near future. And then on the hunting advocacy side, there's a lot of neat things that, that we could be doing, different species that we could be perhaps hunting, um, making it easier, reducing barriers to point of entry so it's simpler for us all to take a new person. You know, this this hunter apprentice idea, like chase, meet someone on one weekend, Take them out tomorrow, man. Go go online and you're off. You can just go and give it a try. Take a shot. You might like it. So there's those types of things. And then on the on the duck production, we didn't really talk much about that, but I know you talked a bit with Bob and Scott about. You know, there's we have big plans in the future to do more, um, to produce more ducks, right? So there's there's that in front of us. Like we Manitoba, we got between us and Rolls Entity, the MHHC. We have over 5,000 hen houses in Manitoba, which is the biggest number of hen houses anywhere in the world. But there's a lot of wetlands and there's a lot of mallards and we're not even scratching at the surface of a, of a uh, kind of a population level or uh, you know, a, a robust program such that it actually would matter for duck populations in the, in the grand scheme, right? So we have big ambitions at Delta to do more with that. So producing ducks is a big one that we're excited about. But, but for me personally, yeah, I, I come right back to the opportunities to get more people hunting. That, that's a, we gotta, we gotta continue our efforts on that and expand that. That's great. Uh, you do great work at Delta. Delta does great work in the community. So thanks so much for coming on today, Jim, uh, and enjoyed the conversation, learned a lot and, uh, can't wait to carry forward some of that work as we move forward here uh, 
both as hunters and conservationists. Yeah, thank thank you guys for what you're doing. I've listened to a number of your podcasts and and know um, uh, Jessica was on, Frank Baldwin, and others. And I I really dig what you guys are doing. You're doing a fabulous job, and uh, keep it up. And with you know, you guys you guys are a key cog in this in this outdoor community for for Manitobans. We're lucky to have you guys. Phenomenal. Thanks. That means uh, a lot to us. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Jim. And uh, just one thing I'd like to add here before we take off uh to the listeners you know um if you want to make a difference out there uh you know buy your buy your membership to delta or whatever conservation um uh group that you're interested in find out how to volunteer go to these banquets they're obviously very important to uh to not only raising money for for the cause but hunter recruitment and all sorts of things and uh check out the online banquet that delta has rolling here yeah the, the the winnipeg chapters online banquet will be uh february 12th to 19th and we got some great great products and hunting trips and different things on there it's going to be great uh decoys we got some fabulous decoy carvers as you guys are well aware of in manitoba and by the way how's your decoy carving going? i remember the pat gregory thing there it was that was a really interesting one <laughs> So hope your decoys are coming along, but uh, yeah, we do. Have, otherwise, you could just buy them like me and collect them, like you can see in my backdrop. Oh, yeah. I love uh, I love decoys. So amazing. Well, thanks, Jim, and uh, we'll we'll catch you later, hopefully in the marsh. Yeah, or or maybe on a starlit night out camping by the Spruce Woods there or the Cinnaboyne River. I listened to that episode too. I love that oh, one. Oh boy, right on. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And that's a wrap for 75. Thanks so much for listening. We appreciate you all. Can't believe we made it to 75. It always gives me a smile. And uh, without you, we couldn't do it. So if you appreciate us like we appreciate you, just want to remind you, give us a like, give us a follow, share us with your friends, share us with someone close to you who you might think likes the podcast just like us. And that's how we've done it. That's how we got the word out. That's how we keep getting the word out. So don't forget every, every one of those like comment and rating helps us that much more. So appreciate everyone who's done it to the date. And uh, if you haven't, please take the time to do it for us. Also, we're updating the store with a few new items. Uh, First off, we got new sweaters coming in some of them are new some of them are are old style we got the white goose sweaters coming back and a limited edition of the black goose sweater this will be new uh we're thinking we'll do limited prints with it so try to snag it while you can i know the goose sweater has been hot in the past where folks have been messaging us after the fact um Sometimes, unfortunately, once it gets printed, you know, that's kind of what we have. So try to get them while it's there. Um, We're excited about this. Chase, what else we got rolling in the store? Man, we got to match those goose sweaters. We have some goose buffs coming out or uh, the the tubers or like the face shields. So those are pretty damn nice, I got to tell you. It's kind of a, a black faded into like a goldy pattern with uh with our goose logo on there i'm excited about those they're gonna look hot especially with the goose sweaters 
and uh man we I'm, I'm excited about the year coming up i think we got a you know a lot of cool designs and kind of in the in the queue right now and uh we should have some cool stuff uh coming out but um the latest stuff is also exciting sweaters for sure buffs. um besides that though guys thanks again for listening here don't forget to check out the delta silent auction uh from february 12th to the 19th here and uh go renew your membership you know right now uh through all this covid stuff it's very easy for people to forget about these not-for-profits and these conservation organizations and you know every dollar counts for them help them out help the ducks and uh as we look to february starting to wind down here want to wish everyone great success on the ice be safe out there you know we lost a couple folks uh over here in manitoba to some unfortunate series of events with ice fishing um and you know just want to wish everyone safety and try to do the best you can to stay safe we're all a team out there and hopefully you also have great success so if we don't see you on the ice hopefully you have some tight lines keep an edge on your knife keep that powder dry and uh stay tuned for the next podcast folks <laughs>